Amen. Our scripture this morning is Joshua chapter 5. And if you have your Bibles or your phones, you want to turn to that. We'll also have it on the screen if you don't have scripture with you. While the Israelites were camped at Gilgal on the plains of Jericho, they celebrated Passover on the evening of the 14th day of the first month. The very next day they began to eat unleavened bread and roasted grain harvested from the land. No manna appeared on the day they first ate from the crops of the land, and it was never seen again. So from that time on, the Israelites ate from the crops of Canaan. When Joshua was near the town of Jericho, he looked up and saw a man standing in front of him with a sword in hand. Joshua went to him and demanded, Are you a friend or foe? Neither one, he replied. I am the commander of the Lord's army. At this, Joshua fell with his face to the ground in reverence. I am at your command, Joshua said. What do you want your servant to do? The commander of the Lord's army replied, Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did as he was told. You know, in, uh, in some 40-plus years of walking with the Lord, I think one of the greatest challenges I've found in being a follower of Jesus Christ is to actually follow Jesus. Uh, that might sound kind of simplistic, but to be a follower of Jesus Christ, the challenge is to follow Jesus. We all know the story, I'm sure, when Jesus invited Peter to step out of the boat and walk on the water. When Jesus did that, he was literally uh, actually inviting Peter to walk where he walks. I don't know if we realize that sometimes, that he was inviting Peter to join him where he was, to be doing what it was that he was doing. What most of us do as Christians, if we're really honest, I think, is we accept Jesus into our lives. We recognize our need for a Savior, and maybe for the first while, everything is wonderful, and it's splendor, and this whole new life. But over time, if we're not careful, what I find the majority of Christians end up doing is we begin to reduce Jesus to our level of faith. We begin to kind of create him in our image, and no longer are we stepping out to where he is walking and living, but rather we just invite him to follow us around in what we are doing. But to really be a follower of Jesus Christ, I'm convinced that we need to walk where Jesus is walking. We need to desire to live where it is that, that he's living. Now, if you're not familiar with the story we read this morning or, or an excerpt here, what has taken place is the nation of Israel, they have been in the land of Egypt for 400 years. For more than 200 of those 400 years, they've actually been slaves. And so finally, God sends a deliverer, by uh, an, a man by the name of Moses, to bring them out of Egypt, but not just to bring them out to die in the desert, to bring them out because he has a new land for them. The land is called Canaan, or what we know today as, as modern-day Israel. And God promised them that this land was a land that was flowing with milk and honey. Now, what's interesting is that in God's calendar, he intended this to only take about 18 months, about a year and a half. By that time, they left Egypt, made the long trek toward, uh, toward Canaan, and then in between to stop at Sinai, receive the law, and basically to learn from God to become the people he wanted them to be as he moved them into the promised land. That was his intention. And so when they do arrive at the boundaries, the borders of Canaan, if you remember the story, Moses sent 12 spies into the land to scout it out and look at strategically the best way to take the land and so on. The 12 return, and there's only two of them, Joshua and Caleb, who actually believe that they can take the land. 
They come back and report the land is everything God said. There's just the abundance of food, the provision. It's all there for us, ready for the taking. There's some major obstacles, but God is with us. We're going to do it. That's the two of them. The other ten came back, saw the same thing, but their hearts were different. And they began to spread this report among the people. We can't do it. It's everything Joshua and Caleb said. It's everything God promised. But man, just the obstacles are too big. We cannot do it. We're just like grasshoppers compared to these people that are in there. There's no way we can do it. So they spread that negativism and unbelief through the camp. And the people decide we're not going to go. Well, by and by, basically God says, okay, you're not going. And because of your rebelliousness, anybody who is 20 years of age and older today, you will never see the promise. You are going to die in this wilderness. I'm going to take the next generation in. In fact, it's kind of ironic because one of the arguments the people used for not going into that land and doing battle was because, you know, our children will be destroyed. And yet God says, no, no, no. You see, you don't believe me. Because of that, you're the ones that are going to die. Your children are actually the ones who are going to inherit the promise. And so... Fast forward 40 years, Moses has passed away, the unbelieving generation is dead, and Joshua now is poised to lead God's people into this land of promise. And the Bible says here in verse, verse 11 that they observed Passover for the first time, and then, or rather they observed Passover, and then for the first time they began to eat from the food that was grown in Canaan. If you're familiar with Israel's history, while they're in the wilderness for 40 years, God supernaturally provided what was called manna. And the word manna means, anybody remember? What is this? <laughs> so basically it was a miracle, just like bread, that appeared every day. They had that for 40 years. But now that they're, on, they're within the boundaries of Canaan, the manna is no longer needed. Now they are starting to enjoy the bounty of the land in which they find themselves. And as I read that, I thought, you know, there's really a couple of lessons here for, both of, for us regarding two different levels of faith. And I find within the body of Christ today that these, these, these exist uh, quite commonly. The one level of faith is simply those who are content to wonder as long as your needs are met. I don't mind wandering through life. I don't mind my Christian life being kind of aimless, pointless, hit and miss, kind of, kind of, you know, by chance. Hopefully things go well. As long as my basic needs are met, I'm happy with that. So you have that group or that mindset because we can all kind of fall into one or the other sometimes. But then you also have those who contend. You have those who are not content just to kind of, you know, get through life and just case arouse, arouse, things happen, hopefully it's all good. But they actually contend. They actually have a heart to know God. They have a heart to do what pleases God. They have a heart for the word of God and they, they lay hold of God's truth. And if things are not presently lining up according to the word, then they come before God and they say, Lord, this is what your word says and I want this to be true in my life. And they begin to contend. They begin to lay hold. They begin to move into what it is God has promised them and they actually begin to experience the reality of a relationship with the living God. The Bible says in Matthew chapter 5 that he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. And you know what? For a lot of people and a lot of us within the church, that's good enough. It really is good enough for us just to kind of go through life knowing the Lord is kind of with me, uh, trusting that when we die we're going to go to heaven. But in the everyday decisions, the everyday things of life, we still kind of just try to tend to live like good people, but we're not really aware of God's presence in our life. We're not really that concerned with what it is he has for us or what he wants to bring us into. But if we're truly going to follow the Lord, we have to come to serious terms with this fact. 
that God's plan for us, his intention for us, is not just to zigzag us through life. That is not God's will. For just this kind of hit and miss happenstance, just kind of hope things work out, you know, more good than bad, whatever, that shows that maybe God loves me. That's never God's intention. The Bible says time and time again, I have a plan for you. I have a plan that's specifically for you that I want you to know that I want you to live in. And so if your life resembles more of kind of a wilderness experience, then I want to encourage you to understand this morning that as soon as you decide to move with God in what he is doing, what he is talking to you about, he will actually begin to bring you into a new place of understanding. He'll bring you into a new place of purpose. He'll bring you into a new sense of knowing what it really means to be a son or daughter of God. Now look at verse 13 again. I have this in different translation. kind of puts it in a different way. It says, Now when Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up and saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. Joshua went to him and asked, Are you for us or for our enemies? Neither, he replied. But as the commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. In other words, and this, this really goes against our sense of self-importance. This really goes against, you know, what we think in our culture, what our culture feeds us about our importance. Basically, the commander of the army was saying this, of the Lord, he says, Listen, man, I'm neither with you nor against you. I'm with the Lord. I'm on his side. So if God tells me to fight for you, I will fight for you and you will win. But if God tells me to fight against you, I will destroy you without a second thought. I'm not for you. I'm not against you. I'm with God. Joshua, the only question you have to ask is, whose side are you on? Where do you stand? Where's your heart? Where's your interest? Where's your priorities? Are you moving with God or are you moving on your own? Joshua, you decide that and you'll have your answer. That kind of goes against our Christian culture today, doesn't it? But that's the word of the Lord. Reminds me of the story of a man who was uh, moving his desk. He worked in the house and he moved in his office desk and he was just going to move the, uh, the desk from one side to the other. And his little four-year-old daughter, she comes into the room and she, she gets in between her father and the desk as he's pushing and she's down there between him, you know, down low and she's pushing and grunting and groaning and straining and, and she's, you know, bit by bit, bit by bit as the furniture is moving. But then she turns to her father and she says, Daddy, stand over there. You're in my way. And so she steps aside, and you know, he steps aside, and he just kind of smiles, and she's still there, just straining and grunting and groaning, but he's not pushing. Desk doesn't move an inch. The lesson's clear, isn't it? You see, we kind of go along. We forget that, that God's with us. We go along. We think that we can kind of do everything on our own, and, and there are ways, whether it's verbally or just by our actions, our decisions, that we're basically saying, God, I can handle this now. You just, you just step over there. You just kind of get out of my way, and I'm still, I'm going to go the way I feel I need to go, the way I want to go, and I just, I just want you to be around for when things really get heavy. And yet the scripture says this, when we push God off to the side, we get frustrated. But we are on his side, Paul says, with God's power working in us, God can do much, much more than anything we can ask or imagine. You see, I find where we really get ourselves into trouble is we get so caught up with our priorities. We get so caught up in just the novel pursuits that we try to fill our day with to make life interesting. And we, we think they're so important. Here's the catch. 
that we actually begin to believe that God should feel the same way about them as we do. That our priorities should be his. The things that are important to us should be important to him. And that's why when things don't go the way that we plan, that we want, we get mad at him. We get upset with him because we figure if you love me, then you ought to be backing up what I want to do. Life ought to go the way I want it to go because when push comes to shove at the end of the day, it really is about me. It's about me. It's about my happiness. It's about whether or not things are going my way. That really is the human heart. But the Bible says that your dreams, as big as you think they may be, they actually pale in comparison to God's dreams for you. When Jesus called us to follow him, he said in Matthew 16, he said, if anyone wants to follow in my footsteps, will you read this last part with me? He must give up all right to himself. Take up his cross and follow me. I, don't, I see that scripture's not up there. We do have somebody up there, don't we? Okay. I'll read it for you. If anyone wants to follow in my footsteps, he must give up all right to himself, take up his cross, and follow me. I think where we get confused is when we begin to believe that Jesus is always with us. How many believe that he is? You can raise your hand. It's safe. But we confuse that with believing he actually follows us around. There's a difference. Jesus is always with you, but he does not follow you around. Do you see the difference? Jesus is with me, but he doesn't follow me around. Will you say that with me? Jesus is with me, but he doesn't follow me around. Jesus basically says, I'm going this way. I'd love to have you follow me, but I'm not following you. Now, you see, I am the way, so why would I go your way? I am life, so why do I want to follow your dark pursuits? It's not going to happen that way. You must follow me. I really love Joshua's heart. It shows why God chooses him to be the leader of his people. When this man identifies himself as the commander of the Lord's army, Joshua, it says this in verse 14, At this, Joshua fell on his face to the ground in reverence. I am at your command, Joshua said. What do you want your servant to do? Now, I'm sure you're aware by now that this is no ordinary angel. It's not even an archangel. This is actually Jesus himself who's appeared physically in, in human form in the Old Testament. And it's incredible when you really think why he appears. He appears to Joshua because he is God in the flesh who personally is going to lead God's people into the promise. He's there to escort the men. He's there to do battle on their behalf. And here's Joshua, this, this seasoned warrior, this, this, this soldier, this strong, wise man with a heart for God. And yet, though he's ready to go and take possession, believing that God's with him, he goes to take possession. He recognizes at this moment that there is one who is mightier than him. And he bows down to him and he says, I'll follow you. Friends, we sang song after song this morning, but I wonder sometimes if we really understand what we're singing. I have to ask myself sometimes, do I really believe what I am singing? Do I really believe that there is one who is mightier than me? 
but who comes to lead me into what he's spoken to me about, whatever it may be. Whatever seems impossible to me, whatever seems like an obstacle to me, if God has spoken to my heart and said, this word is for you, I will lead you in, but you've got to understand that I'm stronger than you. Do you really believe that I am, or do you just sing it? Because if you believe that I am, together we can possess what I'm talking to you about. It can become a reality. In fact, Abraham believed God, and it was attributed to him as being a righteous man, a godly man. What did he believe? Romans tells us that Abraham believed those things that he could not see as though they already were because God spoke it. And he trusted in God. And Abraham possessed the promise God had for him. And the, simple, uh, the principle is the same for you and me. I want you to notice, this is so important, I want you to notice Joshua's response to the commander of the Lord's army. Joshua doesn't say, awesome. Oh, you're the commander of the Lord's army? This is awesome. Man, we are going to, what can I say? You can't say kick butt, can you? Can't say that. But we're gonna, we're gonna, you know, do some serious damage to the enemy. I mean, Joshua's all excited because God's on his side. So listen, I don't have time to fill you in. Well, you're God, so you know anyway, okay? Don't really have time to fill you in. Let's get moving. We've got to do this thing. I'll fill you in along the way. Isn't that kind of what we do? Lord, I I I'm glad you're with me. I, I don't really have time to kind of get to know you. I don't really have time to concern myself a whole lot with the specifics of your plan, what you may want to do. I'm just glad to know that you're in my life. So, Lord, here's where I'm going. Here's where I'm heading. Don't get in the way. I just need to know you're there in case I need to call on you. When I need a power that's greater than mine, I really want you to be around. But, but basically, life is busy. So, Lord, here we go. Just, just try to keep up. Joshua doesn't do that. He has this posture of humility. He bows before the Lord, and what does he do? Two things. Number one, he surrenders his plan. He's a strategist. He surrenders his plan. In fact, if Joshua had to come up with a plan, how many think Joshua would have got all of his generals together, you know, all these mighty men, and said, okay, here's the plan. I got a great idea. It's going to blow your socks up. Sorry, I didn't wear socks. It's a great idea. We're just going to march around the wall. That's it. Not do a thing. Going to do that for, you know, several days. And the last day we're going to go around seven times and then blow the trumpet and the walls are going to come down. Isn't that great? Joshua never would have thought of that. But Joshua, before the commander of the Lord's army, number one, surrenders his strategy. And number two, he surrenders his command. I'm not in charge. I am here to do whatever you want your servant to do. I have found over the years in walking with the Lord that when you come to that place, and it may take decades, but when you finally come to that place that you realize that God's not on your side, that he's not going to follow you around, I find for most Christians or most church folk, because only God knows our heart, I find usually the response is one of two things. When you realize it's not about you, when you realize it's not just God blessing your plans and make you happy, but he actually has a plan for you, and that might mean some sacrifice and change on your part, I find for the average professing believer, one or two things happen. You either, number one, walk away, or you worship. It's one of two things. Uh, you see it all the time. You see believers who walk away, who physically walk away from the Lord. They just check out of church. They just check out of serving God. They go back to their old lifestyle, or basically just check out in some way and just go back to living life on their own terms. Or... They do it kind of emotionally. They're still in church. But like Paul says to Timothy, 
they act as if they're godly, not trying to be hypocritical, but they just kind of checked out. And so they, they live religiously, but the whole time they reject the power and the presence of God that could actually make them godly. And so we can kind of walk away from the Lord that way too. We can walk away from the Lord where we're familiar with his presence. We might even enjoy church and realize it's a good thing. But through the course of the week, there really is no deliberate sense of checking in with God, surrendering to God each day, and and walking out his purpose for for uh, for my week. So we can walk away. That's one thing we can do. The other thing we can do is we can worship. And what happens when you worship is just like Joshua demonstrated, you come before the Lord and you lay your plans before him. You may have ideas, you may have dreams, you may have even things you rest with in your heart, somebody's hurt, whatever it may be, and how that's going to play out. But you bring it before the Lord and you say, Lord, here's, here's my strategy, here's how I would deal with it, but Lord, I surrender command of my life to you, this situation to you, this attitude of my heart to you, whatever it may be, this challenge to you, I surrender to you, and Lord, I ask you, what would you have me do? What would you have me do? And what you realize is that what we really need is really not so much all the you know, answers to our questions. Most times what we need is simply a fresh revelation of Jesus, a fresh revelation of who the Lord is. And oftentimes, if that's your primary pursuit, you'll discover that a lot of your questions will get spoken to in the process. Proverbs 16 says this, Commit to the Lord what you do, and your plans will succeed. Will you say that with me? Commit to the Lord what you do, and your plans will succeed. Now, that doesn't mean that you plan out your, what you want to do and then kind of get God's approval after the fact. What it means is that you bring them in prayer before the Lord before you commit yourself to it. You bring that plan before the Lord before you commit your resources, your finances, your time, whatever it may be, to it. That's where I think so much confusion enters a believer's life. So many believers don't, and I probably shouldn't use the word believer, but so many professing Christians really don't live with any sense of daily coming before the Lord, or even for a moment before making some even sometimes huge decisions. And so what we do is we just kind of do what seems right. What, it's not necessarily a bad thing. There's no you know, clearly identifiable evil in it. It just seems like the common sense thing to do. And so we do that, and then oftentimes it fails or there's frustration. And so then we begin to reason to ourselves, and this is all with the devil's help. We begin to reason to ourselves, well, it doesn't seem like God really comes through in my life. Because things aren't working out the way that I think they should be working out or something, something is difficult. And so since it seems like God doesn't come through, then I might as well still you know, walk with God in the sense of believe in God. But essentially, I just have to do the best that I can because after all, we're really on our own anyway. That really is how a lot of believers live their lives. That's how a lot of decisions are made. That's the attitude. I believe in God. I would never go so far as to say that God doesn't exist. I know he's real and I sense his presence. But basically, it doesn't seem like God comes through for me a whole lot. So I'm just going to try to kind of do the things I should do as a Christian, not do bad things. But at the end of the day, you're kind of on your own. You know, with God, it's a matter of kind of tossing up prayer and then hoping for the best. And even after I pray, well, you know, God helps those who help themselves, doesn't he? Right? That's what the Bible says. No, it doesn't. You know, it's in my book of Hezekiah. I've told you about that. I have an imaginary book called Hezekiah where I write down all these little nice, you know, Christian jargon, things that we say that sound scriptural, but it's not. You know, I think it's Hezekiah 3 now, Hezekiah 3 and 4, you know. God helps those who help themselves. It's right beside the verse that says, grin and bear it. 
You know, that's just the word of God to us. Well, that's, that's not how it works. But you see, where we get things confused, once again, going back to what I said earlier, is that we have this mindset that, okay, Lord, I, I can kind of take care of it. Um, when, when things get really difficult, I'll invite you in. But at the end of the day, I still am going to take charge of my life and, and do things. I don't have patience to wait on you. I don't have patience to actually hear what it is that you want me to do. Uh, the Bible says this. We know, Romans 8, that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. It doesn't mean we perceive as good always happens, but in all of it, God is working for the good, for those of us who love him. Write this down somewhere. If you love Jesus, you will love his plan for your life. You will love his will for your life. I'm not saying if you believe with him, in him in your head. If you have a relationship with him and you know his heart and you love him, you will love his will. You'll pursue his will. You will want to know his will in the decisions that you make. Rather than rush out ahead of him, you will take time to consult with him and allow him to work in and through the decisions that you make. You will want his will. And his will is not some mysterious blueprint out there somewhere that you have to figure out. His will, the Bible says, unfolds you over time as you commit to the Lord what you do. How do you do that? Day by day, decision by decision, you acknowledge the Lord in all of your ways, and he directs you. And if you don't know where to go, you stop. And you linger. And you wait in quiet and solitude is your strength. What's the Lord saying? On the treadmill of life, things are going so quickly and you're, you're operating so much in the natural, you'll make mistakes. But if you will stop, if you will get off the treadmill, if you will actually begin to follow me and not just ask me to follow you around, you'll actually begin to discern what the will of God is. We call that walking in the Spirit. It's day by day, decision by decision, inviting the Lord into the conversation. It means that you submit your plans to him before you commit yourself to your plans. Don't raise your hands, but how many have ever made some unwise financial decisions that you regret? Because you didn't ask the Lord. It either seemed like a good idea or it's just flat out something that you wanted. You weren't even going to ask God because you knew he'd say no. And you sure did not ask your wife. You just kind of went out and did it. But it was a snare. It was a trap. You become enslaved to something that you regret. That's just finance. That's an easy illustration. But it can happen in relationship. It can happen in whatever decisions that we make. We have a tendency to quote and just kind of do what seems right. And we commit ourselves to things that, again, we become enslaved to. And the Lord says, if you would learn to submit to me first, I will direct you. I will give you grace and strength to say no if you need to or to make the right choice so that you're able to commit yourself to what I'm showing you and to my ways that bring life. You see, worship is so much more, and I know we know this, but it's so much more than just singing. Worship is so much more than just a tingle down the spine. Worship is a posture of your heart. It's a posture of your heart that comes before the Lord and says, Lord, you're the commander. I'm your servant. How can my life honor you? What would you have me to do? What would you have me commit myself to? Verse 15, the commander of the Lord's army replied to Joshua, take off your sandals 
for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did as he was told. Take off your shoes. A couple of things come to mind when I think of this act of taking off our shoes. The first one, which is not that profound, but the first thought that comes to mind is simply our desperate need to just stop and to spend time with God. Just, you know, take off those things that always tempt you to be on the run. Take off those things that you have to have on if you're going to be on the treadmill. Just take those off because I don't want you on the treadmill. I don't want you going ahead full speed. When a friend drops by, somebody you actually want to drop by the house, what do you usually do? You say, come on in. Take off your shoes. You're not worried about your carpet or your hardwood floors. Take off your shoes. Because I want you to stay a while. What's your hurry? Give me your coat. You're not getting it back until we're done visiting. Take his coat. You know, if it's freezing outside, take his shoes. Why? He's not going anywhere. And to me, taking off the shoes is God's way of saying, would you stop asking me to follow you around? Would you just get off the treadmill? Would you walk with me and work with me and watch how I do life? There's a beautiful song, a chorus we used to sing years ago. It just says, in your presence, in your presence there is peace. In your presence, in your presence there is joy. I will linger, I will stay in your presence day by day. Here's why. Until your likeness can be seen in me. That's what it's really all about. A second reason for removing our shoes is understanding that if you want the touch of God upon your life, you've got to get rid of the dirt. You've got to get rid of the dirt. I remember a story many years ago I read of a, of a mother who was walking along with her child, and the child was just caked in mud, and obviously playing outside, and they're just walking along, kind of enjoying themselves. And the man was talking to his friend as they walked by, and he said, man, that mother doesn't love, doesn't love her child. The other guy said, well, I'm sure she loves her child. The problem is she doesn't hate the dirt. <laughs> she just doesn't hate the dirt. And we can be kind of the same way. We can profess to love God, but we don't hate the dirt. The thing that actually keeps us from having intimate communion with him. With the touch of God, the anointing to be upon our life. You see, the anointing is not a complicated thing. We talk about the anointing or the touch of God on someone's life. The touch of God, I believe, is simply that confidence that accompanies the believer who actually deals with sin in their life, who, who knows what it is to have a clean heart, who knows what it is to begin a day or to move through a day having spent time in the presence of the Lord and has the assurance that he is with them and, and just simply is sensitive and open to what he would do through their life that day. It's not a complicated thing, but it's something that every single one of us need, the touch of God. And, and you know what? If, if that doesn't excite you, nothing will. If you don't get excited about the presence of God in your life as a believer and the Lord accompanies you through the day, that's why a lot of times we have other pursuits that just waste so much of our life and our resources. When the Lord tells Joshua to remove his sandals because on the holy ground, he's basically saying, Joshua, if you want to walk with me, then you need to leave the dirt behind you. You need to come clean. Psalm 66, David said these words. He said, if I had not confessed the sin in my heart, the Lord would not have listened, but God did listen. He paid attention to my prayer. Praise God, who did not ignore my prayer or withdraw his unfailing love 
from me. You see, the devil wants you to believe that you can't come to God if you've blown it. You can't come to God if there's something you're struggling with now. If there's an area of failure right now where there's condemnation, he wants you to believe that you can't come to the Lord, but that's a lie. Joshua came to the Lord. He came to holy ground. Moses came to the Lord, didn't he? He came to holy ground. And when they came to the Lord, they came with their sandals on, and they came with dirt still on their shoes. But here's the key. They were willing, once they came into the presence of God, they were willing to remove the sandals. They were willing to remove the dirt. And that's when they received the orders of what to do next. And friends, if you have sin in your life that you're not willing to give up, that you bring every Sunday, every Sunday, every Sunday, but whatever the Lord's talking to you about, but at the end of the day, you're not willing to give that up, you need to understand that the touch of God is not going to be upon your life. When we come to the presence of God, no matter what baggage we are carrying, the Lord invites us. We're going to come to his table in a couple of moments. He invites us to come. He doesn't say stay away, but he says, but when you come, I want to deliver you. I want to cleanse you and forgive you. I want to heal you, whatever it may be. That's what I want you to do. That's what these emblems represent. What Jesus has done for us to demonstrate, he came to destroy the works of the devil. And if the enemy is having his way in your life or the flesh is having its way in your life, don't stay away from the Lord. But when you come to the Lord, come and do business. Come and be serious. Come and deal with it. We say this many times here at Glad Tidings if you're visiting, but you say, I can't go to Jesus because I've got too much sin. My question is, where else are you going to go? There's nowhere else you can go. So you have to come to the Lord, and he wants you to come. But when you come and he speaks to you, he wants you to get serious about it. If you don't, you'll never move forward. It's just that simple. But he invites you to. And that brings me finally back to verse 13. that reads, Joshua looked up and saw the man standing in front of him with a sword drawn in his hand. And the sword, of course, speaks to the fact that God is ready to go ahead of his people to do battle. But there was also another time, back in the Garden of Eden, you may remember, where there was a drawn sword. And after Adam and Eve were expelled from the garden, the angel was there with a sword that moved every direction. Why? So that Adam and Eve could not get back into the garden and eat from the tree of life and remain in their sinful condition forever. So God protected them from that. But the sword also spoke to something else. It spoke to the fact, if you're going to go back into the garden, if you're going to go back in and have an intimate relationship with the living God and receive eternal life, it's only going to happen if you're slain, if you die. The only way if you have an intimate relationship with God is you die to yourself and receive new life. And the drawn sword of the commander of the Lord's army was the Lord saying, the only way you're going to prevail in the battle that's ahead of you is to first of all deal with the battle that's within you. And what is the battle? It's the battle to either choose to surrender your strategies, surrender your control, and receive from the Lord what it is he wants to lead you into, or you have the choice to run through life with your sword drawn, slashing and cutting, going at breakneck speed, whatever, doing your own thing, and just making a mess of things. You've got a choice. Joshua's marching toward this fortified city, probably one of the most fortified cities in the world in his day. He's a great warrior, but he has no clue how he's going to overtake this city. He doesn't come with enough equipment. He doesn't have enough time. If he besieges the city, he's going to die of old age trying. It's not going to happen that way. 
The Bible says to us in Corinthians that we fight with weapons that are different from those the world uses. Our weapons have power from God that can destroy the enemy's strong places. Our weapons that we have are mighty through God, another translation says, to pulling down strongholds. I said at the outset that what most of us as Christians do is we surrender our lives to Jesus one day, but then we go on and reduce him to our level of faith. And then because we live that way in the power of our own flesh, the devil begins to convince us situation after situation that doesn't come through the way we think it should, that actually it's God who doesn't come through. And so we might as well just do the best that we can because it seems we're on our own anyway. This whole life of faith is futile. But the real issue, I believe, is this. Jesus is with you. He is always with you. But he will not follow you around. That's not what he's there for. He's not there just to bless and make your plan succeed. He says, I am the way. I'll show you how to go. I am truth. I'll help you discern. I'll help you stay free. I am life. It's in me. It's not what, in you, think, what you think it is and what you're seeking. I've got a plan for you, but it's this way. And I'd really love you to come with me. But you know what? Either way, I'm not following you. I'm not following you. I am with you, but I'm not going to bless your flesh. I'm not going to bless your lust. I'm not going to bless your pursuits. I'm not going to bless those things that entrap you. You've got to trust me. I am the way. I want you to walk with me. If you will, I'll bring you into what I've promised you. You see, we all have Jerichos in our lives, don't we? We all have those things that seem to be impregnable, those things that seem that we just, there's just no way we can come against those things, no way we can tear those things down in our life. But I promise you this morning that even though you may feel like you've been wondering for a long time, God has not withdrawn his promise. There are things that God has spoken to some of us here this morning a long time ago. And we think because so much time has passed, I'm sure God must have changed his mind. He doesn't change his mind. He has a plan for us. Again, he's not zigzagging us through life. He says, I have a plan for you. I know what it is. It doesn't change. And however long it seems to be that you've been wandering through the land or through the wilderness, the promised land has not moved. That promise is still there for you to take it. Some time may have passed, but it's still there for you to take it. But here's what you have to do, and I'm going to ask the worship team to join me and the brethren to get ready for communion. Here's what you have to do. Number one, you have to decide whose side you're on. You've got to come to the place that you truly believe that God's dreams are bigger than yours. And even in the smallest of decisions, it's worthwhile taking it before the Lord, and the Lord might say, hey, not a problem. That sounds good. Go for it. You have a peace in your heart, and you do it. You know, I, I, remember, I remember when I, I, honestly, I sought the Lord with fasting and prayer before I asked Vanessa to marry me. I did. I was like three hours into my fast, and I felt the Lord say, well, why not? That doesn't sound too spiritual, does it? You know, you're supposed to have an angel show up. This is my life. This is, you know, the rest of my life. But I had a peace in my heart anyway. I just felt the Lord kind of confirm that. Yeah, sure, go ahead. She's the one for you. Oh, okay, well, thank you, Lord. Now, could you just talk to Pastor Penny? That was her dad. So it's not always complicated, but there's a real peace in just having that check in your heart that, yes, this is what the Lord would have for me, of choosing, not to, uh, or choosing to be on his side. And second, choose to worship God rather than walk away. I want to encourage you this morning to choose to surrender to what you know the Lord is saying to you rather than walking away and saying, I don't want to do it that way. And finally, get rid of the dirt. 
There really is a confidence that comes to your life when you have a submitted heart and a clean heart. You can hear the word of the Lord. You can receive and respond, receive and respond. I'm going to ask the elders to come, if you would, at this time as we uh, prepare for the Lord's table. And as I mentioned earlier, this table is something that we do, as Jesus said, in remembrance of his death on the cross, his burial, and his resurrection. But the reason Jesus said, remember, wasn't because he's saying, every time you come to this table, I want you to remember what your sin did to me. No, we know what our sin did to him, and we worship him for his great love for taking our sin upon him. But he says, what I want you to remember is what I accomplished for you in overcoming the power of sin in your life, that you could be free. You don't have to stay stuck where you are. You don't have to be under control of whatever it is that is robbing you from everything God is speaking to your heart. The power has been made available to you to be forgiven, to be healed, to be cleansed, to be restored, to be restored in your relationships, whatever it may be, where you say nothing's going to change. God says, if my word is different, then my plan is for it to change. It's that simple. Do you hear me this morning? If your situation, your attitude, your position doesn't line up with God's word, his truth, he's saying, my truth doesn't change. The question is, do you want it? Do you want to lay hold of it? Do you want to take possession of it? Or do you just want to live on the outskirts and say, well, Lord, I know I don't have the things that you promised. I know things are not the way they ought to be. But you know what? I'm happy just to get by. The Lord says, well, if you want to, that's, that's your choice. But you've got to know there's milk and honey. There's provision. There's a dream I have for you that's bigger than anything you dream. It's there. But you have to decide day by day, decision by decision to say, okay, Lord, I receive your truth. I want your truth to be a sword in my life. I don't want to go out there just slashing and doing my own thing. Lord, your sword is drawn. I want to follow you. You will go with me, and you'll begin to tear down strongholds in my life. You'll begin to bring me into that freedom.